All right, welcome to our show. We're going to spend uh, the whole show today with uh, one very fascinating writer. Uh, you may know him. His name is Chuck Klosterman. Uh, his new book is called Raised in Captivity, uh, a series of hypnotic uh, essays. Well, they're not essays either. They're short stories that have some basis in reality, but also some basis in non-reality. They're very hard to describe, as you're probably noticing. Uh, he's written lots of books, and he's uh, been the ethicist for the New York Times magazine uh, for three years. Uh, he is one of the original founders of the website Grantland, along with Bill Simmons and James Madison. I believe those were the three founders of Grantland. Uh, and uh, we're very excited to have him here. So, Chuck Klosterman, welcome to our show. Hey, it's great to be on it. So I want to talk about uh, this book uh, and these essays. Uh, everybody seems to struggle to find a way to describe what these essays are, and everybody winds up doing sort of these kind of hybridized things. I came up with Italo Calvino and Mark Lehner co-write a Black Mirror episode or a whole series of Black Mirror episodes. But there's sort of a, a way in which you begin in reality most of the time, and then something happens. Something happens where our basic idea of reality is shaken, uh, whether it's a, a football coach uh, who, a high school football coach who only runs one play, forces his team to run one play over and over again, and it later turns out that that has had a cumulative effect on their minds uh, in certain ways. Or a band that discovers that one of its older songs has now be, is being downloaded and covered and, and slathered over by white supremacists. Um, so I don't know, maybe you could just say a little bit about your approach. You know, These are a little bit different from other stuff you've written. Oh, it is. You know, uh, and I appreciate all the descriptions you use. That would be great if that was the case. I don't know if it is, though. I mean, I I suppose these are, I don't know, terrestrial science fiction in the sense that there's elements of science fiction, but they're not happening in space. Like, I'm not on a space station. I'm not on right. Mars. They're happening on Earth. Um, and, you know, I, 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 you know, technically they are short stories, although I'm always a little hesitant to say that because... I'm afraid someone might be listening to this and being like, oh, I love short stories. I like Lori Moore. I like George Saunders. I'm going to buy this. It's not like that. Okay. Right. Um, you know, traditionally in short story writing, like if we were at like a creative writing program at a college, they would say, okay, here's what you do. You start with characters and the character must evolve. And the character evolved to these plot mechanics. And from that, from, from, from what we see the change we see in, in the principal character and the actions and the hinge points in the mechanics from that, an idea or a th kind of a theme emerges. I work backwards. Like, I start with the idea. And similar to essay writing, um, you know, the idea is, is to kind of have every part of the piece um, just kind of serve this this kind of hypothetical question um you know uh the characters in my stories because they're so short they don't really evolve i mean they're more like the characters in like a hitchcock film where it's a <laughs> character type mm -hmm. and that i think if someone is reading these stories they're like i've met a person like this or i understand a person like this and then the thing that happens in the story usually that we're based in reality that's just like ours, except for one thing being different, and mm. that's what the story is. Um, and I have to say that, for the most part, 
the outlook of these stories. I, I'm, look, I'm looking all the way through for the common thread. The outlook of these stories is not particularly hopeful. Uh, I would say uh, somewhat pessimistic. Uh, things uh, are, for the most part, not going well. If it's set in uh, some imagined slightly distant future, uh, things have gotten worse. Uh, Wikipedia has merged with the public school system. Um, uh, maybe you say a little bit about that, too. Is that just being pessimistic for fun, or are you really feeling that dark right now? Well, that's a hard question because, you know, sometimes people like to present themselves as being cynical, right? They'll Mm -hmm. be like, oh, I'm a cynic. But, of course, an actual cynic would never think that way. An actual cynic who actually thought (laughs) the world was bad would Mm -hmm. think they're a pragmatist. Yeah. Okay. So if you say uh, I'm a pessimist or I'm an optimist or whatever— you're kind of projecting how you want to be seen. I guess I don't feel that way. I mean, these stories to me are mostly funny. All right, like yes. I mean, to me, that's the hope. Now, I will concede that the reception of these stories is that they are very nihilistic and dark. I didn't think that when I wrote them. I mean, I understand why this happens. I understand how that works. I mean, there are only a. I mean, there's what, 34 stories in the book, and only a couple of them. I would say end with a happy ending in a conventional sense. Um, I I I just I kind of write about what I daydream about. Maybe my daydreams are are sad. I don't know. <laughs> I really like the idea though that you're worried people are going to go back to the bookstore and say, "Wait a minute, these are nothing like John Cheever. These are. Well, I want my money back." Well, that's why you know the the, the, the subtitle of this book. It's like almost consciously confusing because it's like fictional nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what is fictional nonfiction? Well, it's the same as nonfictional fiction. It's fiction. Okay. But if I didn't want to just put stories at the bottom, which is what the publisher often wants you to do, like to say like a novel or short stories or whatever, I thought that was for one thing boring. And I also, um, I, I, it's not like I'm claiming that I'm doing something no one's done before. I know other people have, but it does feel a little different than what is usually presented as this genre of writing. And and it could be just because I'm not that good at it. And I can't I can't write the way that other writers do. So I have to kind of make up my own style. Kind of sometimes you'll see this with guitar players who like didn't take guitar lessons and then they get and people go like well how did you develop this and he's like well I, I couldn't do what the other people were doing so I just did this <laughs> Joni Mitchell well, you know I mean she didn't she couldn't read music yeah. she didn't know how to I mean all the of her Beatles t- couldn't read music right but I mean all of Joni's tunings were just yeah. like made up yeah. by Joni so um uh, one of the things uh, that I, I see popping up in a few of these pieces, and they are very funny, by the way. I wouldn't want to suggest that they are merely dark. They are very funny. Is a sort of a, an idea that we also we're we're living in an information economy and an information saturated environment, but a lot of the information is wrong and, and very fungible, very easily overturned. Uh, there's one where uh, scientists studying nutrition discover that basically everything they've ever thought about nutrition is wrong. The only thing that's important is how close to being alive the thing is that you're eating. So like an apple that you could eat while it's still growing on a tree would be way more valuable and a regular apples almost worthless or an apple pie is worthless. There's another one where a guy wants to break up with uh, his uh, significant other and he, he finds some research that people can't cry and eat something delicious at the same time. But that turns out to be completely untrue. And he spends a week pay, a week's pay, you know, ordering this incredible meal at a restaurant with her. There, there's a way in which you're sort of, you're, 
we are, we've all turned into information freaks, but we have a hard time evaluating the quality of the information. Well, that's very true. You know, I, uh, I think that, that sometimes we watch the news or we consume media and we, we come to these ideas about how the world is changing. But, but maybe one thing that seems very clear now, uh, even though it's probably always been true, which is that every reality is happening at the same time. And that people are constantly living these lives and living in these sort of simulations of life where uh, they construct what is what isn't isn't true and then they sort of live within that framework um i mean this is just something i've felt for a while you know is it, it always makes people uncomfortable when i say this but i guess i kind of have given up on the possibility that I can control my own thoughts and feelings. And I don't think anyone can. I mean, I, I just think that in a, in, a, in, a, in a heavily mediated culture where we're just inundated with ideas and images all the time, and then we also have the limitations of our own biology, the way our mind is a collection of electrical impulses and our body is mostly water and all these things that are tied to laws of physics it does lead one to wonder how much agency is really left. And I, I, uh, I'm very skeptical whether the things I believe and feel have anything to do with me. And if I'm just sort of absorbing all this information, um, sort of refiguring it in a way that seems original or creative to me, and then injecting it back out as if I built it. And all I was was sort of like the racquetball wall <laughs> that, that the ball bounced off of. Although the alternative would be, I mean, in some writers, you know, Pynchon being the most obvious example, and Salinger to a certain degree, Don DeLillo to a slightly lesser degree, William Volman. There are people who, writers who just go, you know what, I'm not going to have anything to do with any of that stuff. The only way that I can have an original thought is to s- essentially stopper my ears and blindfold, blindfold myself so that I can stay away from the in- kind of environment, the highly manipulative environment that, that you're talking about, you've kind of gone in the opposite direction, right? You're, you're, you're very much a part uh, of that ecosystem that you're describing. Well, it's a, it's a very good question and very, I mean, that's kind of insightful because the, the writers you mentioned, I mean, I have a huge admiration for that. For that, for for the ability to sort of separate yourself from society and kind of work in your own silo of existence. Now, I was a newspaper reporter for eight years. Then I lived in New York for fifteen years, writing for magazines. Um, I am generally associated as being a nonfiction writer about the popular culture. It seems as though um, I my entire existence is intertwined with uh, the rest of society and the rest of the world. But, you know, I've moved to Portland, Oregon now, and I write now in a little log cabin in my backyard. I bought a house, and in the back there was a pre-existing cabin, which I had a guy come in. I always kind of say it's like Ted Kaczynski's Unabomber cabin, although this does have Wi-Fi, which he probably wouldn't have liked. Nah. But anyway, so so I made this cabin into, like, my office. And I am trying to... to, to have a, a life that is a little more separate from the world because one of the you know the upside to living in New York and and kind of being in that ecosystem of other writers and other media people is that you do get smarter you're just surrounded by really intelligent people all the time and every idea that exists is almost like a battle you're always every every interaction you have 
is a kind of a debate over the meaning of things. Um, but the downside is, is inevitably, you do become like other writers. Your thoughts become more shared. They become less um, singular. And I am trying to get back to that. And I, I, I don't know how this book would have worked if I was still living in New York when I wrote it. Because it, it, it sort of required me to, to really be like, you know, inside myself. I mean, it's. I know it, I, it seems like this is the thing you say when you're just trying to sell a book. I, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I'm worried to say this because it just seems so fake to me. But like, this is this is the most personal book I have written. Now, that seems very odd to people considering that I've written <laughs> memoirs. Right. Like, I've published memoirs. Mm. But those things were about my external life. Like, this book is actually about my internal life. And it's like, what is happening in my skull alone? And uh, that's a that's a real difficult thing, a, a hard goal to attain in the modern age. Right. I think if you were to say to somebody that you didn't know that you were trying to grow close to, if you really want to understand me, read these thirty four pieces. You'd scare the crap out of them. You know. Well, I I don't think anybody who, I don't think anybody who doesn't know me would ever conclude that this is a personal book because there's not there's no signifier in right. it that suggests that it's me. I think the people who are close to me um, are probably very aware of it, although I was surprised. My wife was shocked when I said that. I was doing a book reading, and I mentioned what I just said to you, that this was like this personal thing. And we got home that night, and my wife was like, why did you say that? That's like a weird thing to lie about. And I was like, well, I'm not lying. Mm -hmm. I'm not lying. That actually is true. And she was like, what? So maybe it's so masked or hidden that 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 the person who knows me best doesn't see it but to me it seems it feels so obvious like i almost felt that's oh, weird to have these stories i I'm almost too vulnerable in these stories, like too exposed. But luckily, no one else thinks that, so I can just do it. <laughs> so you've just done, I think, a, a nine-city uh, publicity tour, which means you're in cities, you're doing readings, people are getting in line, they want uh, autographed uh, copies of your book and selfies, and you've done this a lot, so you've really kind of gotten to know the Klosterman audience. Um, and I, I, I feel like there might be a prototypical Chuck Klosterman fan. In fact, we, I work with one. There's a guy here at this radio station named Tucker Ives. He's, you know, very much into everything that you do. Have you kind of gotten a sense of who the audience is that you're reaching, who, who's really responding to, to what you write? Huh. That's a good question. Okay, so this is the 11th book. I started doing this in 2001. And the first book I wrote, it was called Fogger Rock City, and it was about growing up listening to like hair metal in the in in rural North Dakota, like you know bands like Poison and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. When that book came out, of course, it didn't do that well. It was my first book. I was an unknown person, and you know I do a book reading in say Chicago or whatever, or you know in in Denver. And 11 people would show up and there would be 11 people exactly like me. I mean, exactly. Like, they looked like me. They liked all the same things. They were the same age. It was like 11 clones of myself. And the second book was Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And that book was much, much, much more popular. In fact, it's basically as popular as all my other books combined. And that completely changed the audience for a while. Okay, and you know, suddenly there would be hundreds of people there, and half of them would be women, and I couldn't predict who would be there, and and you know, it's almost like a bell curve, right? So then you keep touring with the other books, and then there's a period where people go to your readings, and they're not even that interested in your work. It's like they're just they've heard about this person on the internet, 
they've heard other people say that they have an opinion about him and they almost show up not I mean spectacles going too far but they're not really invested in the work they're actually invested in the personality but now I'm on the other side of that hill right and the audiences for my book readings are smaller and smaller and and they're you know the idea of 200 people showing up that's never going to happen again um so now I'm getting actually closer I have a feeling by the end it will be like the beginning <laughs> those guys where it'll be pe- <laughs> except now they'll be like old guys with right. kids or whatever I, I I often think to the crowd you know and I, I you know because people still show up and I'm always super flattered when they do but I think to myself this is a little like blue oyster cult fans in 1989 like you know it's like like they saw them when they were in clubs in the 70s then they became an arena <laughs> act and they were like oh I love this band but they're still going you know like they're still going and people are like does that band still exist and they're like oh yeah yeah they've had a record out or whatever that's sometimes what I think about now that that I'm returning to the people who like the books originally <laughs> Right. So um, we're going to play a game now called Who Said This to You? So I'm going to read you a quote that somebody said to you because it's apropos of what we're talking about right now. And then you'll just have to tell me who said it to you. All right. I think there's a space in our culture, in the living memory of people over 40, probably in the collective memory of people under 40 for the American novelist. And for various reasons, after Mailer and Updike and maybe Ann Tyler went into eclipse, there was a wish to have some new people in that position. But culture had changed so much that it became hard for someone to fulfill that role. So when someone came along who could easily be mistaken for that type of novelist, there was a hunger to latch on to that person. Okay, first of all, who said this to you? Kid Rock. <laughs> no, it was, uh, that was John Francis. Jonathan Francis. Okay. Jonathan Francis. So, but he's talking about a thing that is, uh, when I first realized that you were going to be on the show, I was, thinking about, I was thinking about that exact thing, that there was a time when writers were pretty visible and, you know, there were certain writers, I mean, you knew what they looked like, that you knew what, you knew what they sounded like, you saw them on Dick Cavett, you know, stuff like that. And, and that kind of went away, I think, to a certain degree. And like, I really like Jennifer Egan's book, if you, books, if you mm-hmm. handed mm-hmm. me her newest novel. I would read it, but I don't really have a like. I knew what Kurt Vonnegut looked like and sounded like, and I kind of knew how he would handle himself in a DeCavett interview. I don't know any of those things about Jennifer Egan, even though I've even seen her speak once. But there's a way in which, for your audience, you're kind of that way, right? You these people, the people who like you, they really have a very vivid sense of who you are. I'm trying to turn this into a question, and I don't know how. So well, go I, ahead. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying, and you know. Uh, Okay, on the one side, on the one, you know, it's like there, there's uh, like so many things. There's an upside and a downside to this. Because the upside is that I'm sure that that sort of relationship, the idea that people have a sense of what I am like and, and, and what I talk like and sound like, has sold more books. I'm sure, you know, I, I go on a, a podcast uh, by this guy, Bill Simmons, uh, and, and it's a hugely popular podcast. When I go on there, um, I get almost as much attention as I get from releasing a book. You know, uh, it's, it's, I was in like, you know, a little documentary movie about LCD sound, LCD sound system. Of course, these things probably do help promote, you know, the idea of who you are, but there is a downside to it too. Um, you know, when I started this, uh, a compliment I would often see about my writing, you know, I mean, people would have, you know, some people would like it, some people would hate it, but the people who would like it would say, oh, there's a lot of voice to this writing. Like, it's just, he's got a kind of organic, natural voice. But here's the deal. If someone doesn't know what you sound like and your writing has a lot of voice, the voice they use is the best version 
of their own voice. The writing becomes more likable because they almost feel like they are creating this experience they're having. But as soon as people actually know your voice and they know how you actually talk, it becomes impossible for them to read the work without hearing the way you sound. And frankly, some people hate my voice. There are people right now listening to this radio interview and they're like, this guy's annoying. I don't like the way he sounds. I can't help the way I sound. It's just the way I do. Um, now, well, as a Roy consequence... Bl- yeah, Roy Bluntman said that the that he hated to do readings because he said the entire point of literature is to get things down in a voice that's actually better than the writer's own. And then the minute, you, the minute you do that, they make you go and read to people. Oh, anyway. uh, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. It also changes the experience. Like, if somebody thinks uh, that m- my voice is hectoring or grating. They're going to read my work in that way as well. And I do sometimes think that if I had never given interviews, if I had never done podcasts, if I had just been like William Volman or whatever, like I have no idea what William Volman sounds like. So when I read a William Volman book, I'm hearing myself tell me that story. That's a huge advantage. Um, now, like I said, I'd be less popular, though. I probably would not be on your radio show now. Well, certainly not if I didn't do radio interviews, I guess. <laughs> you wouldn't have me on. It'd be just you know a blank slate. Um, but I, I think about that a lot. Like, it's... It, it's I, I, I know I'm supposed to be happy about it. I know that, you know, if I do a book event... I mean, sometimes I go to colleges. I get paid to talk at colleges. That's a big deal. I should be, you know, overjoyed by the experience, flattered that they want to pay me and all of these things, which is an extension, not so much of my writing, which is partially, but mostly just being a person that they recognize. Um, uh, it's, so it's it's an odd thing. I mean, I, I, I have very mixed feelings about it. Yeah. No, I, but I know what you're saying. I, you know, when you were saying that, I was also flashing back, I'm, I'm older than you are. And so I had the experience of having been, this is going to seem like a, not a very good analogy, but that um, I ha- of having been a very dedicated as a child and a young, even a young man, uh, uh, Peanuts comic strip reader. Mm-hmm. You know, like I really loved the strip. And this Me is before too. there were any animations. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think also that you and I probably like the strip for similar reasons, which was that it, rather than this kind of sunny, ill-advised Eisenhower era you know, version of of cherry-cheeked, happy children, it was children as they actually are, or as we felt, they were neurotic and sad and worried. Uh, but when they animated it, like the voice of Charlie Brown, all the voices were completely wrong because I had I had put m- versions of my voice. You know, I projected those onto the panels of that, that comic strip or some version of a voice that I hear, you know, in my own mind. And, yeah, and I will admit that, you know, when I was reading, I probably was. No, in fact, I'm sure I'm, I'm wrong. I'm sure that I saw like, um, you know, like the Halloween special or the Christmas special of Peanuts before I had the capacity to read. So the very first times I read Peanuts, I'm sure I was using the, the Charlie Brown voice. That that I'd heard on television. Uh, interestingly, you went in the other end of the pipeline. Then. Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. and and interestingly though, you know, um, if you watch the specials, Snoopy doesn't talk. Right. They, they, you know, so I guess for Snoopy's voice, I'm still <laughs> uh, manufacturing one myself. Right. You know, that's that's an interesting question. Yeah. Right. Well, that's something we'll all have to think about for a really long time. But right now, we have to take a very quick break. Oh, we'll be back with more of Chuck Klosterman after this.
All right. We're talking to Chuck Klosterman. Uh, his new book is uh, Raised in Captivity, fictional nonfiction. I just wanted to say one more thing about this book, which is that when you start reading it, when you read it and become imbued with this particular point of view, then you like read other stuff, and it just seems like one of the pieces in the book. So while I was reading this book, Chuck, I read a piece by a woman, a very young woman who's taken over a local uh, dog shelter, and as one part of her training of herself, she uh, slept in a kennel for seven days, uh, I guess during all four seasons, so uh, whatever, 28 days, but you know, seven days in each season, uh, leaving only to go to the bathroom. That was the one thing that the dogs did that she wouldn't do in the kennel. And she writes things like, then there are the ones who just get there. You see the confusion on their face and feel the intensity of the fear in their body language. They grip so harshly with their paws and claws into the floor not to be put in the kennel. Once in there, you watch many of them hide in the back or sit in the corner of the kennel. Some of the newbies are immediately so fearful. Aggression is the first symptom they display. And she says you know, they acclimated to her very quickly. They seem to accept her as another dog. And I'm thinking, are you sure this is not essay number 35 in in raised in captivity. Yeah, so she actually stayed in the cage. She yeah, she's in the, cage. in the cage. She's living in a cage like all the other dogs. And she says mm. she wanted to experience what it is to be a dog in a kennel, um, which is sort of funny, but also I, it was admirable. I mean, I, there's something kind of heroic about this. Well, you know, you know uh, but, you know, she's only getting halfway there. She wants to experience what it's like to be a dog in a kennel. Well, yeah. she's experiencing what it's like to be in a kennel. She's not experiencing what it's like to be a dog. Oh, so you think she, she should be? Any... She should need the kibble, and she should. Well, no, she can't. It, it cannot be done. Like yeah. there's a famous essay about like someone trying what, to understand yeah, what it is like, to be how a bat. A bat yeah. like a bat. Exactly. It's Thomas. Very, very good, Thomas. Yes. Thomas Natal. Natal. Yeah. yeah there you go. Natal, okay. Like yeah. And and the conclusion is like it can't be done. Like right. there's there there is no matter how every time you try to get close to the way an animal sees the world, you're still putting it through the prism. Of 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 what a human experience uh, projected upon an animal is. So, um, I mean, I guess it, I mean admirable. I guess it is. I mean, she'll know if it's. I mean, <laughs> thing is, it's like it's got to be so boring as an adult. Was she reading in there? Because no, like no, a dog. No, you can't do anything like that. You can't have a book with you. Well, so, well, I don't know. I guess good for her. Yeah, <laughs> I say good for her. I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it, but she did it. Good for her. Uh, so one of the things that I I notice about you is, and I, that I think you seem to subscribe to, is is participating, you know, we talked about this earlier on, but participating in the culture in a lot of different ways, you know? I mean, participating, I mean, you know a lot about sports. You were one of the founders of Grantland, but the, one of the premises of Grantland was that, it shouldn't be uh, sports shouldn't be segregated or isolated from the rest of the culture. Uh, all these things kind of intersect in different ways. Sports, politics, culture. Uh, you like music. You love music enough to have been. Well, as you say, you actually featured uh, in a documentary uh, about a band. In fact, we do you, have, do you have that clip right there? Let's play a little bit of that. Yeah, the music. The. Uh, Wrong clip. B1 is what we wanted. But anyway, forget about that. But you, you've been in a documentary about LCC sound, LCD sound system. You've done mockumentaries uh, on documentary now. And there's a way in which you're sort of refusing to stay in one particular lane. And, and I'm wondering, I guess, maybe how conscious an effort that is. Oh, well, I mean, I'm conscious of it. I don't know if it's a conscious effort. I, I do have a... a 
like a, a I guess I was going to say an advantage, but actually it was just luck. You know, I, I sort of emerged uh, as a person who who who's like a I don't know writer, public writer or whatever, just before the internet really became calcified and the idea of being a generalist was kind of eliminated. I mean, now the assumption is that if you're going to write about something, you're going to specialize in this one idea and your value or the what you can contribute is how deep a dive you can make into this singular thing. Um, but I was a generalist and... Uh, I, particularly when my second book of essays came out and there was there was sort of no clear um, uh, structure as to what, you know, it's like I, I, I wrote about dissimilar things in a similar way and as a consequence I'm kind of allowed to keep doing that. Um, of course, I'm happy about it. I, I, I would not, I wouldn't prefer a career where I only wrote about the same thing over and over again. Um, Although I understand that that is sort of just how it has to be for most people. Um, Although, I mean, I wonder if it really... I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about all week this week is Obama. Because Obama put out... He and Michelle, I guess, put out their summer playlist, you know? And it's like this 40... You probably saw it. It's 44 songs. Incredibly eclectic in its taste. And I think about Obama, who obviously mainly president of the United States, but, you know, who cared enough about sports to do his bracket in public, you know, who would put out a, a list of music that he liked, who would be harassing Richard Plepler to give him uh, Game of Thrones episodes in advance. Um, and, and yes, obviously, we have a very sort of culturally barren person now in, in the White House who seems to have very, very few interests. But I liked that thing about Obama, that, you know, he wasn't he wasn't going to stay in any one lane and he was going to live life the way that people live their lives who who care about culture and who are enriched by culture. And, and I I think it's good. I think it really is an effort worth making not to stay in one place. Well, it also reflects something about, you know, how you think about things that aren't um, obvious policy-based questions. You know, I mean, you know, when when Obama was asked what his favorite television show was, he said The Wire. Okay, now, I don't doubt that. I believe that it probably was his favorite show. Um, but it's also understandable why some like why a sitting president would say that. Like, um, it it would be you'll ne- one thing you'll probably never hear is you'll never hear a, a president say they don't like sports. Okay? Mm-hmm. You're just never going to hear that because they do not want to be seen uh, by a populist, part of the populace, as someone who has an adversarial relationship with something that they kind of see as part of their identity. I mean, um, it, it's it's very fascinating to me the, the, the ancillary information public figures put out in the world. Uh, and, you know, we're always hoping that it's completely authentic and guileless, but it rarely is. Although, know? actually, if you look at the current field... I don't get the feeling Bernie gives a crap about sports. I would be astonished. Maybe the Vermont Catamounts or something, you know. But um, you know, and, well, that's and, interesting. You know, it, you know uh, but uh, you know, it, is this uh, like not this specific point, but things like that. Is that the reason that there is maybe a ceiling to how far <laughs> Bernie Sanders can go in political life? Because you know, if people are drawn to him. Because um, it seems as though he is kind of talks like a real person. The things that they'd say about Trump are actually very true about Bernie Sanders. Um, but, um, you know, as a consequence, you know, his 
his most ardent followers are very marginalized as being a certain kind of person. And it seems as if when you look at the polling that that there seems to be a hard ceiling on what he can do. And and is a reflect is that partly reflected by the fact that he doesn't he's not willing to, as they say, play the game of what someone in his position does. Yeah, I mean, it would be weird if I mean, for I mean, think of all the barriers that he would break. He's Jewish. He's a professed socialist. Um, he denies being an atheist, but in the uh, other times, he's appeared to be uh, an yeah. atheist. If those weren't problems, but he doesn't know who Brett Favre is, that you know that that is a problem. Mm. Or maybe you're saying all of those things are of a piece. Well, There's a they represent yes. a certain dis- detachment from the mainstream. Uh, well. Um or an unwillingness to sort of understand that there are some signifiers that uh, a political person, a quote-unquote political person, just sort of adopts reflexively. Um, you know, uh, for a long time, they would have said, well, of course Bernie Sanders can't be president. I mean, he's a socialist. There was, a, I mean, it's it's interesting when you talk to young people now who, can't remember that there was a period where that was like you couldn't have become city alderman if you were going around saying you were a socialist. It was just like an impossible thing. Uh, the fact that he had gotten as far as he did as a congressman was amazing, you know. Um, but now that has changed. Now that is now that is is seen as a, a form of populism or whatever. So that's not as a big a problem anymore. However, the 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 kind of personality that drove him to that position, even when it was unpopular, might be in some weird ways an Achilles heal to, to his overall potential um, because people have these expectations. Like you talk about the Obama list or whatever, you know. Um, what would your reaction have been if you're looking at the Obama list of songs and there'd been a couple R. Kelly songs on there? People would have been shocked. They would have been shocked. Now, granted, R. Kelly is a hugely popular artist who's had a, a huge amount of success in his life, but no one would ever list him among the 40 songs they loved this year. I mean, Obama will list Reeling in the Years by Steely Dan. That song has not really been in the public consciousness for a long time, but he can put that on there and people will be like, oh yeah, I love that. He kind of went chalk, though, with Steely Dan and Van Morrison, Brown Eyed Girls, he, sure. you know, which he does with his NCAA picks, too. I, I mean, mean, those going, weren't interesting yes. choices. You know? Yes, I mean, go. you say going chalk or whatever, that's a great phrase, you know? It's like uh, that's something Sanders does not do. Right. You know, he just, yeah. So as long as we're on this subject, uh, we'll do a little flashback to you talking to Trevor Noah. Hopefully we've got the right clip here. <laughs> Is it possible that in another 800 years, this period will seem crazy? It seems very possible to me, even though I don't necessarily know why that, that will happen. That begs the question, though, I go raises the question, rather, uh, Donald Trump. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Could 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 we be be wrong? Yeah, well, because that would be the thing. Yeah. Could no. could we look back and go, what? He made America great again. It is. It is sort of this terrifying idea because it's like, well, no one's going around saying like, well, if we can just get him in office, it will be great. That's the problem. Like, there's the assumption, of course, that yes. he's the least qualified person yes. possible to be this far in the race. Yes. And if he became president, it would somehow destroy democracy. Yes. And yet the thing is, this is happening because of democracy. So we need to yeah. destroy mm-hmm. democracy to stop Donald Trump. It is. Uh, it's yeah. It's kind of. A, it's the paradox. I of think living. it's the price yeah. worth yeah. paying. <laughs> yeah. That's from 2016. I don't know. React. 
to what I said. Yeah, react well, to yourself. You know, that was that. Well, that was before Trump was elected, and it was so. You know, it was a. It's just an interesting period of time. It's like the four months before that election are kind of like the four months after nine eleven, mm-hmm. where we as a culture have collectively decided we're going to forget how it was. You know, sure. like we're just going to forget that people were saying the things that we were saying. The night that Trump was elected, I was still living in New York, and it, I think it was like 7.20 p.m. on election night. I was still texting a friend of mine who was freaking out, and I was like, don't worry, there's no way he can win. It's like, it's like, like, it's not possible. You know, um, the, uh, the thing I was talking to Noah about was that book, But What If We're Wrong, which came out that year, and that was sort of about the idea of, uh, trying to think about the present tense as if it was the distant past because the criteria we use to think about history is so very different than the criteria we use to think about the world as it's happening. Um, now, since Trump's election, many people have then asked me, it's like, well, you know, uh, is this an example of what we're wrong about? But it's like, it's not as though people aren't going around saying, I wonder if we made a terrible mistake. I mean, if we're wrong about Trump, it will mean that we're wrong about the value of his presidency, which would mean we were wrong about how bad he seems to be <laughs> performing. But, you know, and that's and and that's something that's just an unacceptable kind of thought to have right now. Like it would be it would be very difficult for any serious public intellectual to be like 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 let's say Noam Chomsky came forward and he was like, you know, there's a lot of issues with Donald Trump, but here is is why in some ways he has set himself apart from the previous administrations and, and you know, like that would be that would end Noam Chomsky's career. Mm-hmm. You know, like he couldn't I mean, he's almost dead. I mean, not almost dead, but very old. So it's like, it's probably like, like he wouldn't be that, you know, it wouldn't be like he's got to worry about the next 30 years of this. But um, uh, it, it's that's the kind of question that is so kind of profoundly insane. We can't even ask it like society limits us from asking that question. But when you look through this, like the trajectory of history, how many times this kind of thing has happened where there was a question we were unwilling to ask and it ended up, you know, uh, now seems abundantly obvious or absurd. You know? Right. So I've, we have to pause here. Also, we have a call from Noam Chomsky on line three. Uh, this is going to be so awkward. This is really going to suck. All right. Uh, let's take a little break. we got more Chuck Klosterman uh, when we come back. So I decided, you know, I was going to work on my voice. The guys who sang Hi, Michael McDonald, Getty Lee, you know, you know, Russell Hitchcock, all of those guys. But Clark was almost a different level. I don't know. I just I just kind of bear down and I get up there. I can sing pretty high. voice would pierce through, you know, like a bird. It seemed as if it was being sung, you know, by a woman, or maybe not even a woman, like a really young, very waifish girl. Didn't want to let Clark hear that. No, you don't let him hear that. You'd have a boot up your ass real fast. Falsetto is a very phallic form of singing. 
All right, Chuck Klosterman, this is your life. Uh, Chuck Klosterman is here. Uh, his new book is called Raised in Captivity, uh, fictional nonfiction. I do recommend it to one and all. That was you uh, in a documentary now. And you're playing there, you're playing kind of a culture critic there in that, right? Yeah, I'm playing myself. I mean, I, I am very fortunate. Like, I get to be in the real music documentaries and the fake ones. So I get to be the real rock critic and the <laughs> fake rock critic. There really is no better job as a rock critic than getting paid to pretend that you are what you actually already have done. <laughs> how, how are you feeling these days about the critic's job, about the whole idea of even being a, a, a critic? Particularly, in, once again, you know, we talked earlier in this conversation about being in this incredible information saturated environment. We're also in an incredible opinion-saturated environment. Uh, I'm wondering how that affects having any kind of critical voice that can make any headway against all that. Well, there's just been this shift in culture and dramatically in criticism that uh, honestly makes me much less interested in it. Because for the longest period, if you were a film critic or a music critic or a TV critic or whatever whatever art form, a visual art critic, an architecture critic, what you were doing is you were looking at the thing itself and you were talking about music as music or you were talking about a film as a film. And then from that, you might have extensions of kind of political ideology come out of that. So the best critics were people who could write about a Doobie Brothers record or could write about, you know, uh, Reservoir Dogs or any of these things. And though they were ostensibly writing about that subject, um, a secondary meaning came out of it that, that sort of gave it a kind of a cultural relevance and a cultural weight that was really important. But now that has been dramatically reversed. Now basically all criticism is a form of political writing, and that's where it all begins, and the actual artifact is secondary. Um, and that's the only way, as they say, to move the needle. Like, you know, if you know, look at the new, like the new Quentin Tarantino movie, for example. Mm-hmm. This is a great example of it. Okay, so the very first review of that that I saw was by A.O. Scott, um, in the New York Times, and he basically did review the film as a film. He talked about its cine- like its cinematic elements, its sort of relation to the rest of Tarantino's career. There were a few bits about what the uh, the subtext meant or suggested, but for the most part, it was a movie review. Every single thing written about that movie since that first one has basically approached it like it's a State of the Union address. The only thing that they're <laughs> interested in is, you know. Um, uh, how does this reflect on... Does he have a reactionary view about the counterculture from the 60s? Uh, do the female characters have enough uh, speaking parts? And if they do not, is that a kind of a, a veiled kind of misogyny? Um, is the violence in this film supposed to suggest that... Everything about it is is about uh, this this political meaning that's just a reflection of the critic. I mean, you know, and uh, this has happened kind of across the board. I mean, the whole idea in music criticism, for example, which is I worked at Spin Magazine and I was a music critic at newspapers and all, you know, it's the main thing I'm known for, I suppose. Now it's just this sort of uh, uh, an ongoing argument over is the artist culturally good and morally correct? And if the artist is deemed to sort of be a morally correct person, then the work is subsequently loved, regardless of, of what its value is. I mean, I didn't watch the Video Music Awards this, this year, the MTV Awards, but I read about them. And um, it's real interesting to me how they've kind of embraced this idea in totality. They have an award yes. for now good the works. best video for good. Yeah. Uh, 
I just that that seems <laughs> and very Taylor, Taylor Swift won it too. Yes, yes. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I I mean, I, I, I suppose so, maybe under the parameters they've created, maybe that that's who should have won it. But it's a very strange thing. Um, you know, it uh, the well, I mean, she look, she won for um, uh, you've got to calm down, which I mean, it shows that there's a very fine line between altruism and opportunism, right? There's like a lot of people who saw that as her just trying to piggyback on to Pride Month and you know, sure. <laughs> just you yeah. know trying to boost herself using that. And and yes, I mean, I I don't know how that began, and I think it's appropriate in some areas. Like I think Bruce Springsteen is a moral force. You know, there's a way in which Bruce what Bruce Springsteen does. I mean, he's also really a great rock and roll musician. Too. Well, no, that's that's a reason to like Bruce Springsteen. It is not a reason to like the river. <laughs> it, it, it isn't. I mean, like I, I know I understand how it, that seems like a very fine distinction. Yeah. To a lot, you know, to say that like, um, but you know, okay. When I began in criticism, when I started in the nineties, you know what the, the the biggest goal was and what was the the most difficult thing was this idea that could you separate yourself from who the artist is and what the artist does. Right. Because the assumption was the average consumer can't do that. The average consumer that was believed will look at someone like Marilyn Manson and find him to be like a repulsive character. So therefore the music is going to uh, be received in the same way. You as a critic must find a way to split those ideas. That you're able to look at somebody and say like, well, this person has these qualities, their work has these qualities, I'm interested in the work because I'm a critic of music. But now it is the opposite. Now, not only are you not supposed to do that, people get angry if you do. <laughs> like, people are very upset. If if I were to look at Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen for example, if we're talking about Springsteen, and um, if I would sort of make, you know, um, you know, make, Make, make make fun of the lyrics to Thunder Road or something. They would they would be as though it would be like, how are you attacking this person? Like, what have you done for the world? You know, I mean, and Bruce Springsteen is a great guy. He is a real good person. You I, you know you read his auto his memoir autobiography. However you look at it, um, very insightful, very very thoughtful person. You know, um, it's hard to hear Bruce Springsteen interviewed without liking him more. Like anytime I see an interview with Bruce Springsteen, I like him more. But if I'm thinking about his music, it's supposed to be separate from that. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, 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 I do think, yeah. first of all, I should tell you by way of confession that in the 1980s, I was a rock critic at a newspaper and I was the worst rock critic in America. But I do think, like, for example, I reviewed Fleetwood Mac during the rumors period, mm-hmm. uh, a concert of theirs, and I did separate them from who they are, except that even though they insisted on the opposite, right? They were basically insisted, don't make any effort to, con- to separate us as oh, people okay. from our music. But when I did, I didn't think their music was very good. And then people got mad at me about that, too. Well, no, that that is fun. You know, when I first did, um, okay, I did a lot of press interviews for this book. Because the book comes out now, like I said, these nine events and also do all these radio interviews and podcasts. And it was intriguing to me how controversial people wanted me to be. Like I, I do, I do an interview with someone and they'd be like, what do you think of AOC? You know, it's like, what do you think of cancel culture? All these things, like every question that I was given for a while seemed to be an attempt to get me to say something that would uh, be viewed as, um, you know, uh, edgy or problematic or whatever. It was so weird. When I started this in 2001, people would be like, so you think Billy Joel's as good a lyricist as Bruce Springsteen? Very controversial of you. Like, that was seen as controversial then. Having an idea about the lyrical content of pop music, was seen, now that's nothing. Now right. you, can have, you can have any idea you want 
about any piece of art as long as it manifests itself with a political idea that is seen as acceptable. It's the it's, it's a weird thing, you know. All right, so we have to stop. Although I don't really want to stop. I feel like I'm just getting started. Um, but you've got other things to do, and the show's over anyway. Uh, Chuck Klosterman, the book is raised in captivity, fictional, nonfiction. Um, it's a very very difficult book to uh, to. Uh, describe or to characterize or to com- compare to anything else. So you should just read it. And the good news, Chuck, is one of the things that I like about this book is, although I liked almost all of the pieces, if there were occasionally pieces I didn't like as much, I, they were going to be over in about 500 words anyway. You know, That's true. You know, <laughs> They're like short. You don't have to slog through something that you really don't like. Uh, and you'll just go on to something else. And, and really, uh, right now, I'm kind of seeing the world through Klosterman uh, tinted glasses uh what color is that well it's uh you know it's dark <laughs> but there's little twinkles it's dark with little with little bright sprinkles in it could Maybe you live plaid. with that yeah, okay, yeah okay, could, could you could you live with that characterization sure all right yeah. well, well thanks choice? for having me on you know, thanks for doing this uh we'll be back tomorrow we're gonna do a show by the way chuck Klosterman. our show tomorrow is about charles manson uh oh so, great so come back you know i'm sure you'd be a good guest on that show too we are tomorrow's show is in fact about charles manson thanks to Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this particular episode. Kion Wolf on the board, making everything sound great as usual. And yes, join us tomorrow uh, for a trip through the cultural uh, impact and actual physical crime murder committing reality of Charles Manson.